Matthew chapter 6. We've been here for a while. Uh, I don't want to rush through this great chapter, and especially this great 33rd verse, about seeking first the kingdom of God. The last words that Jesus said before uttering the words of the text I'll read in a moment are, are the words in verse 30. I, I didn't put that as part of the text. I apologize to the projectionist, but notice what he said in verse 30, wherefore if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? That's not a compliment, folks, all right? That's a ringing indictment. O ye of little faith, that speaks volumes. And Jesus was talking to the 12 as well as others who were following him. This tells me, among other things, that somebody can be saved. Somebody can really exercise genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved eternally and yet, are you listening, yet struggle with faith in God's daily provision for our needs. So if you have that problem, you're not alone. And I hope it causes us to just listen all the more on purpose to the cure from God's Word. Let's face it, folks, we are still human. We are fraught with the frailties of our flesh Unbelief still runs in our blood. It didn't get all cured when we got saved. We still have to say, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Amen. We still have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. It's not that we have no faith at all. Jesus didn't say that. He said, O ye of little faith. So often we have little faith that our Heavenly Father who has done greater things in creating us and in endowing us with the appetites and the needs we have, we have doubts that He will be able to do the lesser in completely satisfying those appetites and needs. And again, I would quote before I get into the main text that marvelous text in Romans 8.32 that illustrates what I'm talking about here. He that spared not his own son. You know who that is, don't you? God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God would give us his best, his dearest, the one that cost him the most. Do you think he would begrudge giving us anything less than that that we need? So how can we doubt his love? How can we doubt his tender care? How can we doubt his provision for our daily needs? With that in mind, let's read these last uh, four verses of this, the greatest sermon ever preached. It's not the end of the sermon. We'll continue into chapter 7 next week. But verse 31, therefore take no thought, no anxious thought is the idea here. Jesus said, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles, the nations, the heathen seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Each day has its own toll of evil. You know, someone has well said, and I don't know who originated it, but it really resonated with me several years ago when I was going through the supreme crisis of my life. Somebody said, what God orders, He pays for in the lives of His children. How true that is. What God orders, He pays for in the lives of His children. Our Heavenly Father will not be a debtor to us. 
when we set out to wholeheartedly obey and serve him. May I remind you it was a mature David, the king, on the throne of a combined Israel, combined kingdom, who said in Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. In these foregoing verses we've talked about, verses 25 through 32, Jesus gives some powerful incentives to help us see how unreasonable it is to worry so that we will just dismiss thoughts of worry from our minds. But could I just say before we go any further, just thinking correct thoughts about this subject is not enough. Just having the right mindset is not enough. Verse 33 tells us that we need to act or our thoughts will not be established. Roll thy works unto the Lord, we read in Proverbs 16. Roll thy works, thy deeds, thy actions unto the Lord, and then thy thoughts shall be established. We tend to think just the opposite. If I just think right, I'll do right. No, God's Word said just the opposite. (laughs) Just go ahead and do what you do if you had the faith, and God will give you the faith. Just go ahead and do right, and God will give you the mindset. That's counterintuitive. We don't think that way. I didn't get done last week. I just couldn't bring myself to rush through the last two points on the outline today. And so, um, uh, rather than do an injustice to the truth here, we'll just examine it on the second week, take our time. But I need to review just a little. Some were not here last week. We'll get a good running start, and then we'll launch into some new material. Jesus gives us several imperatives here, especially in verse 33 the climatic verse, the theme verse. Two of them are implied. We talked about them last week. The two new ones we'll talk about today, the two new imperatives are actually stated. The first implied imperative covered last week is the fact that God does have priorities. I'm glad He does. God doesn't just lay down a list of arbitrary rules. There are so many people that are really sensitive about this in our day, and they, if if you lay down any rule from the Bible, they're quick to charge you with legalism. God doesn't lay down arbitrary rules, but there are a whole lot of rules He lays down. Everything that God says is important, but some things are more important than others. If we honestly study God's Word, we will be able to identify and trace His priorities. I don't know about you, but I don't want to overlook and neglect His priorities. And so we talked about them last week. These are good rules for life. These are good rules to apply to questionable situations where there's no verse in Scripture that necessarily tells us exactly what to do. We can have some priorities and principles. Number one, always put the spiritual over the physical. Always put the spiritual over the physical. Yes, our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's nothing sinful innately about them. Let's just be honest about that. Let's not come up with any monkish idea that the body is innately sinful and we need to punish it and when mutilate it, flagellate. No, uh uh-uh. But the spiritual is always to take precedence over the physical. Have you ever thought about in doing that, Jesus triumphed over Satan in the wilderness by putting the spiritual over the physical? Before I leave that point, could I just say, and this doesn't score a lot of points. You know me, I'm not trying to score points. I'm trying to be faithful to the Word of God. Let's quit worshiping and exalting godless athletes and actors and actresses before our kids. I mean, you can't turn on the news, you can't look at the stands at the, in the checkouts without seeing all of them just clamoring for our attention. They may be physical giants, but for the most part they're spiritual pygmies. Thank God for some exceptions. 
I just remind you, God is not impressed with how much iron somebody can pump or how many hits they get on their webpage or Twitter. God's not impressed. Always put the spiritual over the physical. Secondly, always put the eternal over the temporal. That's what Moses did. We looked at him in Hebrews chapter 11. He deprecated the treasures of Egypt. He was in line to be prince, to be king. He was the prince. But he was willing to bear the reproach of Christ than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. We need to be like Moses. Let's not be like Esau. The Bible calls Esau the twin brother of Jacob, a profane man. His God was his stomach. He ended up despising his spiritual birthright. He did not esteem the eternal. Number three, always value the scriptural over the fashionable. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. And it matters not who that man may be. It doesn't matter what Dr. Bottle Stopper says. All I'm concerned about is what does the Bible say? It's amazing how even in our fundamental circles, and certainly true of, of, of conservative evangelicalism across the spectrum, we always want to try, try to find some reputable authority to beef up our position a little bit. Could I just say this, and I mean it sincerely, the attitude we need to have is neither I nor my brother is right, but God is always right. And aren't you glad he doesn't stutter when he speaks? He speaks clearly. His word is true. Even when it is out of season, and no one wants to preach it because it's fallen out of favor. Forget the fads. Forget the trends. And by all means, Don't pay attention to the rock stars because we have them in evangelicalism too. And keep your eyes on Jesus. You and He make a majority in any situation. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, I love this verse. It's worthy of being memorized, certainly marked in your Bible. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is maybe a little light in them, a little provenient grace in them. No, it's because there is no light in them. If they don't speak according to the Word of God, they're not to be esteemed at all. And yet we feel we got to bow to the shrine. Put the scriptural over the fashionable every time. I don't care who it is. The second implied imperative last week we looked at is understand God's kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's the theme verse. Seek ye first the kingdom. Well, we need to understand what the kingdom is. I can't spend a lot of time here. We've done so already. We're not talking about palaces and scepters and pageantry and crowns and thrones, at least not yet. For right now, God's kingdom is in spiritual form. God's kingdom is where the king is. And if you bowed your heart to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you've enthroned him in your heart, and that's where the kingdom is. The kingdom is not meat and drink, Paul told the Romans, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus, condemned of the high priests of men, stood before Pilate, who everybody thought had the power to kill him. Of course, he let him know that wasn't the case. Jesus stood before Pilate and said, my kingdom is not of this world. No, the kingdom of Christ is a purer, higher, truer, and more durable nature than any that Caesar or Charlemagne or any potentate of history could ever erect. 
And so again, I asked you as I did last week, are you in that kingdom? <laughs> don't, don't look at your neighbor. Don't look behind you. Look in the mirror. Are you in that kingdom? That's vitally important. The Apostle Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the preeminent Jew that he was, Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, but he was commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is what he testified when you combine what he said uh, in Acts chapter 26 with what he told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, to open their eyes, to open the eyes of the Gentiles, and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, so that they can be translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. I've got good news for you today. If you're not in the kingdom of God, you can be. You can change kingdoms today. Translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Aren't you glad God loves to take the devil's children and adopt them into his family? He loves to take enemies and reconcile them and make them friends. And even more than that, he loves to take those people and let them be ambassadors for him. Pleading with others, be reconciled to God. But let me remind you that Satan doesn't give up without a fight. And if you're thinking about getting saved, if you're thinking about giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ... Yeah, you're going to have to count the cost. We, we don't just paint a roseate picture and kind of slip the gospel in on the inside, and before you know what you're doing, you, you said yes. No, we don't do that here. The world is not going to applaud you. The devil's going to throw everything in his arsenal at you. A man's foes can be they of his own household. But are you so desperate to have Jesus, you're willing to say no to everything else? We need to understand God's kingdom, the true nature of it. Now I bring you to the two stated imperatives today, right here in this verse. They're right on the face of it. Don't have to dig very deep. Number three, after the two implied... Pursue God's kingdom with its righteousness, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Jesus said. Surely that uh, connotes, among other things, being in earnest about it. It's not just having a set of priorities in our mind. I love that word seek. It's a key word in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, but also in the Old Jesus will go on to say in chapter 7, verse 7, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek. There it is again. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Is there a progression here? Yes, I think there is. We ask for things, don't we? We seek people. Seek is the word in the Bible used of God Himself. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 6. Would you turn to Psalm 27? We read Psalm 42 together earlier, but look at uh, Psalm 27. One of my favorite. Maybe you've memorized this. It's worthy of it. The Lord is my light and my salvation and so forth. That's the way it starts. But look at verse 8. David is talking to God, and he says, when thou saidest, and you see those words in italics, so it's implied, but it's necessary to understand the meaning here. When thou saidest, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Have we cultivated that habit of seeking God's face and not just his hand? We talked about that a lot a couple of years ago during COVID. Seek means with intensity with earnestness. Please note also that word righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. 
We're not just to seek God's kingdom, we're to seek His righteousness. As we noted already in Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is, among other virtues there, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So God's kingdom, are you listening? God's kingdom is one that is characterized first and foremost by righteousness. And we need to be reminded of that because we get so used to what characterizes the political kingdoms of the world around us. And yes, especially the United States of America. Please don't get used to the political climate. We get to feel that we cannot trust anything the politicians or the news media says. And we know when they're lying because they're moving their lips. That's really how bad it's gotten. And even if they happen to tell the truth, as rare as that is, so often they say it with hate, with vitriol, out of pride. They use vulgarities and obscenities. I'm, uh, I, you almost can't watch the news anymore. How refreshing it is to turn away from the depressing kingdoms of men and meditate on the kingdom of God, wherein dwelleth righteousness. God doesn't dip His standard. God doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't change. We learned some time back in what amounts to being the text of this great sermon. If you look upon Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one great sermon, which it is, the greatest sermon as far as I'm concerned ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. That's just majestic, peerless, wonderful, inspired. But the text would be Matthew 5, verse 20, where Jesus said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of of heaven. So this is all about righteousness. This whole sermon. What is righteousness? We're really digging to the, down to the basics here. I think sometimes we have an idea, but we don't really understand. Righteousness means purity, holiness, godliness, moral rectitude. May I remind you, beloved, God is vitally concerned about that in our lives, even if it's not number one on our list. I know we don't call ourselves holiness. We're Baptists. But I hope we don't argue with holiness. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Did you catch that? If you don't have holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. The turban on the heads of the priests of Israel had a gold plate tied with ribbons of blue, the heavenly color, and it proclaimed on that gold plate in Hebrew, holiness unto the Lord. And we who have been made kings and priests unto God must proclaim by life and lip that holiness that God demands, it must be the preeminent thing about us. And no, we don't go around saying, I'm holier than thou. And if you live a holy life, you won't have to. You won't have to sing to the top of your lungs, oh, how I love Jesus, nothing wrong with the song. People will know. It will show if any man love God the same as known of him, Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3. Furthermore, we're to seek righteousness in everything, everywhere. Don't compartmentalize your life. The problem with so many of us is we just kind of say to God, not outright, but in so many words or by our actions, yes, now this area is holy, and so is that area, and over here, but Lord, this is mine. Don't touch this. You know, everything is holy to a holy man or woman. 
Unto the pure, all things are pure, Paul said to Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse 15. We've often quoted Dr. Bob Sr. when he said there should be no distinction between the secular and the sacred for the child of God. All ground is holy ground. Every bush is a burning bush. He's exactly right. Every day is a holy day. Every act of service is a sacrament. Religion is not something we wear only on special occasions, and then we put it back in the cedar closets until we need it again. As pastor of this church, I pray God will help me. If I take the attitude, well, I, I can serve God when I stand in the pulpit, but then when I move out, out of here and in a few, more, uh, a few minutes, I serve Satan or my flesh when the sermon's over. Oh, no. Haven't we had enough scandals to rock our movement in recent years because of that very attitude? Well, what kind of righteousness are we talking about? Is this the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, or is this practical righteousness, the imparted righteousness, the actual righteousness? Well, we can't tell from the context, and Jesus doesn't say, so we just better take it that it means both of them, amen? It's a glorious truth, and I revel in it, and I hope you do, that if you're saved, and I'm saved, we stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that has been true from the moment we put our faith in Him. We are justified by faith. And we rest in that. As our only hope of heaven, our only basis for being accepted with God. So we can sing as the choir sang today in an alternate melody. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a borrowed righteousness because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. The very best that we can do with all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in His sight. When we're at our best, that's what God says. So our righteousness doesn't cut it. Oh, we talk about people being good, but that's just relative. There's none good, no, not the one. There's none righteous, none at all. The only one who's righteous is Jesus Christ. And unless you stand in his righteousness, clothed in it as your only hope of heaven, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. But righteousness goes further than that. I'm glad that those that God declares righteous, He actually makes righteous. There's not only such a thing as a righteous standing with God, there is such a thing as a righteous life. And that's the righteousness Jesus was talking about in the Beatitudes when He said in, in verse five of, or verse 6 of chapter 5, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I love it when I hear people talk, and you, you can just tell they're sincere about it. They long for heaven, not, again, because of the streets of gold, not just to be reunited with their loved ones, not be delivered from their suffering and pain, but so that they will be sinless for the first time and see the glory of Jesus Christ and not grieve His precious Holy Spirit. Why are we so slow to say that? David was talking about that kind of righteousness when he said in Psalm 11, verse 7, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Are you serious about that kind of righteousness? Are you actively seeking that kind of righteousness? Jesus is talking about actions here and not just state of mind. Oh, I'm aware of the fact. I've been around a while, and I've seen some movements in the direction they've gone. I, there are some who overstate the possibilities of sanctification in this life. I've been around some people who've actually said in my presence, and I marveled that they had the audacity to say so. They said they were living above sin. They talked about entire sanctification. They talked about the, the sin nature being burned up in them. Oh, I wish that were true, but I, I know myself too good. But let me just hasten to say, I would rather 
overstate the possibilities of sanctification than be indifferent to this matter of personal vital righteousness. So I'm just going to come right out and say it, folks. If we're not exercised about holiness in our life, we don't have the life of God. We don't have the life of God. Seek ye first righteousness. Well, how are we to seek it? Let's seek it in order of time. Jesus said, seek ye first, not second, third, tenth, fiftieth. Seek it first, not after you've gotten settled and comfortable and there's no crisis brewing in your family. Not after all the frontiers in your life have been pushed back and things are pretty much under control. No, no, seek you first now the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek that kingdom that is above all others before all others. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1, probably the most familiar verse in that whole book, that misunderstood book of Ecclesiastes. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Let me be very practical. And I'm going to say some things you haven't heard in a while. I'm not saying you've never heard them, but you probably have to dig up some old authors to find them. Seek you first. Begin each day by giving the dew of the morning to communion with God in heaven. Give God the first part of your day. Give God the first day of the week. I think you're doing that. That's why you're here. But we don't hear much about consecrating the Lord's Day to God. That's legalism. The Puritans went to seed on that. Did they? Or have we swung the other extreme? Did you know that the pilgrims, when they came to America, Cape Cod, in 1620, they got off the Mayflower. They celebrated the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, two days after landing. Two days later. Never mind all the friendly native, unfriendly Native Americans that were a threat to them. Never mind all the pressing necessities of procuring food and shelter. Or the biting cold of winter. It was a horrible winter. Some of them didn't make it through. They still observe the Lord's Day. <laughs> On Plymouth Rock, they offer the sacrifice of grateful hearts and praise-filled lips to their God and their Savior, not dreaming of what precedent they were establishing and what God was going to do in what would become the republic we know of as America. Begin your married life as Vincent and Joanna made official yesterday, though they were married a year ago. It's so sweet to see that ceremony. Begin your married life by supplicating the true blessing of the Father. Seek ye first. And if you can't do that with the person you're in love with, you better cut it off. That's not easy. True godliness, vital righteousness is as good for this life as it is for the next. I appreciate what Spurgeon said. He said, if I had to die like a dog, I'd still want to be a Christian. <laughs> Seek in order of time. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek it in order of preference. We've already talked about God's priorities. I won't go back into that, putting the spiritual over the physical, placing the eternal over the temporal, placing the scriptural before the fashionable. Again, I plead with you, develop these priorities as matters of spiritual reflex, not something you have to deliberate over every time you're presented with a choice. Again, be like those three Hebrew children. When they were commanded to bow down before the, the great image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They said, we're not even careful to answer you, O king. The king? You don't show any more respect than that? You don't even deliberate? You don't even think about it? No, we don't. 
We've already thought it over. Long time ago, Jehovah comes first. If we get burned up, so be it. You don't have to think at a time like that. It's already, you've already made the commitment. Abraham is a great example of showing that Yahweh came first even when he'd only, only begun to know him. When Abraham came from that idolatrous place, Ur of the Chaldees, stopped for a while in Haran until his father died. But then he finally got to the place that God intended for him to settle, Canaan. What's the first thing he did? He said, well, he had to put a tent up because you know, it might rain that night. No, that's not what he did. That's not the first thing. He erected an altar. And then the tent. He sought first the kingdom and God's righteousness. Oh, some people say, but a man's got to live. Uh, mm, are you sure? I would differ from that. There are times when it would be better not to live. We don't have to live, but we do have to obey God. We have to do right till the stars fall. Let's make it a habit to seek first the kingdom. And it'll be reflected in your preferences right down the line. It'll simplify things. It really will. In order of time, in order of preference, seek you first the kingdom in order of intensity. I want to spend some time here. I hope it'll be a blessing and help to you. We need to throw the whole ardor of our soul into seeking the kingdom of God. I, I'm so sad to see this, but Satan has a lot of us spooked out. He whispers in our ear, oh, don't be a religious fanatic. <laughs> Maintain some dignity and decorum here now. You know, I'm glad uh, David didn't listen to that kind of reasoning that dampens our enthusiasm for God. If you want a fruitful study that will help you, just read the Psalms and especially Psalm 119 and mark every time he uses the expression whole heart. With my whole heart have I sought thee. My whole heart. David sought to praise God with his whole heart. On one occasion, he danced before the ark of Jehovah with all of his might. His own wife was ashamed of him. That didn't change things. When the ark was brought up from the house of Obed-Edom that had been blessed because of its being there and into the place where David had prepared for it, he danced with all of his might. He was so happy. He was so wholehearted. But we're concerned about what people think. A Sunday school teacher said to one of her girls in her class, is your father a Christian? I like her answer. This little girl said, yes, I believe that dad is a Christian. But he hasn't worked much at it lately. That could be said about a whole lot more people than just dads. That could be said of a lot of moms and children and teenagers and singles and grandparents. We're not working at it much lately. So I ask you, isn't it time to high time to awake out of sleep and get as earnest about the things of God and about prayer and about seeing people saved and about the desperate need for revival in the church? Why can't we get as earnest about that as we do about sports and vacations and food and politics and retirement? Why? Oh, I know we can't earn salvation by just being sincere. There are people who are very religious and sincerely wrong. We can't earn salvation by being zealous. There are many people who are zealously affected, but it's not for the truth. But I plead with you. I ask you, 
if we truly have the Holy Spirit, will He not implant a love for holiness within us and a disdain for sin and a joy for the truth and a jealous fear of God? Will He not? Is He not the Holy Spirit? Away with this ho-hum Christianity that tips God when the offering plate is passed and barely tolerates sermons and yawns through prayer and savors more the shell than the kernel. Give me that old-time religion that says I would not work my soul to save for that has all been done, but I would work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. Where's the zeal? Where's the earnestness? Where's the passion? We can make fools for ourselves out on the ball field or in the gymnasium, but maintain your dignity in the house of God. I'm not done. I will finish today, I promise. Number four, claim God's promise. There's a wonderful promise associated with the command of verse 33. If we seek first the kingdom of God... And his righteousness, that's the precept, that's the command. Here's the promise. And all these things shall be added unto you. What are those things? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Notice Jesus did not say, seek ye first the things. Oh, no, 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 no. They come with the kingdom. They're comprehended in that. They're the fringe benefits. There are the blessings added. All these things shall be added unto you. In fact, just back up a little bit. Have you ever stopped to think that only by putting God first you can be sure of anything? Many of us have been deceived by the devil about that. You may have a sizable nest egg in a retirement account somewhere, but I, and I'm not here to make you think the worst, but listen, God could let an alternative currency replace the U.S. dollar and all your savings would be as worthless as Confederate money. I don't know about you, but I'd rather trust God than Biden or Trump or Yellen or Powell. Let's look to God and not to secondary causes. Claim God's promise. His blessing here is received in three ways. I'll hasten and then I'll be done. It's received by way of promise. Ask the average unsaved man or woman, and they will say that these things, what we eat, what we need to eat, what we need to drink, the clothes that we need to wear, the other basic needs, they come by way of hard work. Some will even come right out and say, God never gave me anything I had to work for it. I cringe every time I hear that. It's a very foolish and very ignorant thing to say, of course, because as we read in the book of Deuteronomy, it is God that gives us the power to get wealth, the power to work. But when we receive from God's hand because He's promised our daily bread and clothing and the necessities of life, Not only does God get the praise and the glory, but we get the added blessing of knowing that it came by the way of a divine promise. That's why we don't have fundraisers here at Friendship. We don't have spaghetti suppers. We don't have rummage sales. We just make the need known to God's people and trust God to work on your hearts. And for 58 years, He's provided every need. We were all touched recently to hear Laverne Waugh. I know I'm being live streamed. I won't say the country. On her way to her beloved African nation. She told about, I think she did it this time. I know she did the last time she was here. She told about one time when she had done this, when she'd come to the U.S. for, and then she went back to her country, and she took some funds given her while she was here. And the 93% unemployment in that country. And when she got to that destination in her home country, she was so tired. She didn't feel like going out to a remote remote station 
where a national pastor lived with his family and has a church. But she felt constrained to do so. And she was so glad she did. It took her several hours, but when she got there, this dear man was standing with his family, smiling. They had not eaten in three days. And they said to her, Mom, we knew that you would come. And they praised the Lord together. Oh, don't you know that that suds or bread or whatever it was tasted doubly good? Because it came straight from God. We need to receive it from God. We need to receive it without mixture of sorrow. You know what the problem of many of us is? We're so prone to look on the dark side and doubt our God that even when we receive a blessing, perhaps unexpected, we naturally dread that the other shoe is going to fall. We may even say so. Well, I wonder when something bad's going to make weight for this. And we're quick to quote Job and say, Shall we not receive good at the hand of the Lord, not receive evil? The Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All right, listen carefully. That's okay to say after God has for some reason allowed your assets to be devoured, but not before. Let me give you a verse to claim after the blessing, okay? Here it is. Write it down. Write this verse down. Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. That's a true picture of our God. Don't make a caricature out of him. Don't dread that the other shoe is going to fall. Thirdly, the blessing is received in the way of infinite wisdom. Sometimes God measures out, as it were, our bread and our water as he did his children in the wilderness. Aren't you glad he knows our nature? And so he tempers the way he answers prayer accordingly. He knows that some of us would hoard and squander if he gave us too much at one time. And so we need to pray the prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30, verse 8 and verse 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Feed me with the food of my portion, lest I be full and deny God, or lest I be empty and be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Aren't you glad God knows what we need? But not only that, he, he does this with the desires of our hearts. He's not a stingy God. There are times that Rachel and I have needed a little break. I've been here 20, almost 24 years. Only three or four times in 24 years have I been out of this pulpit because of sickness. God has been so good to me. But there have been times that we needed a break. God knew it. And God just nudged somebody to let us stay a night or two in their place at the beach or the mountains or some other place where we could get away. And invariably, I will turn to my wife and remark to her how good God is to let us stay there and enjoy the amenities of that beautiful setting. And you know what? We didn't have to pay a mortgage payment. We didn't have to pay any money for upkeep or property tax. God is good. He's wise. So I think I'll just let him choose how he wants to bless and how he wants to provide. Well, can we say that verse together? Oh, we don't forget it, but let's say it together because it's God's guarantee. Matthew 6, here it is, say it with me. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Is that the ultimate security? Isn't that better than Social Security and Medicare and SSI and SNAP and WIC all put together? Listen, many books and articles and blogs and videos and entire courses have been produced making a lot of money proffering wisdom about how to live a worry-free life. 
Sadly, most of them are materialistic or narcissistic or both. There's only one that's inspired, and that's the Bible. And so as far as I'm concerned, Jesus' words are the last words on this subject. But I remind you before we close, don't make it your aim to attain to freedom from worry. That's not the aim. Let us aim at pleasing God and advancing His kingdom and being righteous in His sight. And then freedom from anxiety and a heart at leisure from itself will be the blessed byproducts. That's what this verse tells us. Blessed Father, help us to rest in you as our provider. Indeed, you are all we need for eternals, and you are all we need for temporals. Maybe there's one here, or perhaps more than one, who's never trusted you for eternal salvation. Oh, they compare themselves to other sinners, and they feel like they're, they stack up pretty good. But when they compare themselves to a holy God, they come up woefully short. They've never trusted you for eternal salvation. They do not have that perfect righteousness that you demand if we are to stand before you in your kingdom. Oh, help them to receive by faith the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. To trust him for salvation, eternal salvation. And I'm sure there are numbers of your children here and listening or will be listening over the next few days to the live stream. Though they're saved, they... They would have to be among those that Jesus indicted for little faith when it comes to trusting you for temporals. Lord, would you enable them to actively seek first your kingdom and then watch you work in faithfully providing for their needs. Oh, Father, help us to be living demonstrations before a skeptical world that God is enough. And we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.